0: Welcome to the One Link podcast. I'm so glad you're with us here today. Uh, today, in the old One Link recording studio, I have the legendary Zach with me. Zach, hey, how guys. are you? Doing?
1: Yeah, doing great. Merry Christmas to everybody and Happy New Year.
0: Yes, yes, indeed. Um, although by the time I actually publish this, it'll be a little after Christmas, but you can <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> know that it was right after Christmas. We all have our full Christmas bellies on and we're thinking about you guys and thinking about working with Hindus. And speaking of working with Hindus, uh, we have another guest on today that we're just really excited to be with. Her name is Julie, and she works in South Asia. Julie, welcome to the One Link Podcast.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to be here and share with you guys a little bit about what my life and my work looks like in South Asia.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, give just just start there. Give us a little bit of history. How long have you been there? Tell us a little bit about the kind of work you're doing.
2: Absolutely. Uh, the short version is in 2012, I thought that I was going to move to South Asia for two years. And uh, here I am still there. Uh, ah. so the obviously had other plans, but I currently live in one of the major urban centers of South Asia. So about 22 plus million people live in the city. Um, and I'm from a town of about 12,000 so it's a little bit different. Uh, My current ministry context, it's kind of twofold. One, I'm working with students and like from students up to two year to career long missionaries who are serving all over South Asia and training them when they get to the field. And then local ministry for me is really engaging college students and young professionals in the city that I live in. So that's what my local context looks like.
0: Okay, excellent. So do you do a lot of traveling or do they all come to you for training? How do you do that?
2: It's a mix of both, but I am very fortunate to get to travel and see what God's doing all over South Asia. We've got people that are working in Nepal and Sri Lanka and Maldives and Bangladesh and Pakistan and India. And so have opportunities to go and just serve alongside of them and celebrate what God's doing in that part of the world.
0: Excellent. In your local context, are you close to universities or do you just meet college age people? How does that go?
2: Yeah, it's a little bit interesting and slightly different maybe than our context here in the US in the sense that, you know, usually college towns in the US have one or two major universities that are there and you can really engage students on on that campus. A lot of our major cities in South Asia, though, uh, you'll find a ton of college students there. But there are a lot of like more like commuter campuses. And so specifically in the city I live in, there's about half a million college students that live there. So a large number of them. But there's about 500 different smaller college campuses. And so what our team has discovered is is actually a little more strategic to find those hangouts Mm. and try to target those areas. So maybe it's a and a sit, place along the seaside the ocean where you can sit down and grab chai and have a conversation maybe it's a coffee shop but there's a lot of those those local hangouts that we've identified and mapped out and so we spend a lot of time in those places trying to meet students and hopefully then they'll invite us back to their campus but it's a whole lot easier to get on campus when you've got an invitation than okay. to just go on
0: uh-huh they don't just let you walk in that's right Okay. Now, what about when you went there, you were probably closer to college age. Now now you just confess that you've been there 10 years. So you're no longer quite college age. How does that change as you interact and and engage with college age kids?
2: Yeah, you just brought up brought up a great topic. That's all the more reason why I need students to come and to work alongside of me because I'm not uh, the same age that I was when I first came out. I still have opportunities to engage, but There's no one better to reach a college student than someone who's closer in age and just season of life uh, to our college students in the city. And so we love for students to come and to serve alongside of us for like a summer, a semester, or even as a part of what we call the journeyman program, where they can serve for two years alongside of one of our teams. Because it's just a great opportunity for them to come in and and a lot of the places, the things they're dealing with, they're struggling with, the conversations they want to have college students from the states can come out and just connect in a whole different way than I can I kind of come in and now I'm I'm the older sister maybe even auntie in that conversation and it's a little bit different but college students come in and working with us so in a lot of ways I see my role as being able to train and encourage college students to come work alongside of our team and to really interact with local students there in our city.
1: Mm-hmm
0: for for college students that are coming, like tell us a little bit about how the worldview of a college age Hindu background person uh, might be same and might be different uh, than what we would expect here in America or yeah, what an American sure. college student would be like,
2: yeah. I mean, I'm finding too. I did student ministry in the states before I moved overseas, and every time I come back, I can tell it's it's even changing and ever ever shifting here in the states, just culturally speaking. but there's a lot of similarities, honestly, when you're sitting down with a South Asian college student and talking with them, it will remind you a whole lot of talking with an American college student. Um, There's just a ton of similarities. A lot of the the struggles that they're having are the same. A lot of the fears that they're having are the same. A lot of the desires and the goals that they have for their life are the same. Um, But I tell people a lot, it's kind of like, An onion. And you on the outside, it looks the same. And you start peeling back those layers, talking with a South Asian college student. And there are elements of Hinduism that maybe on the outside you don't see. But as you start really peeling back some of the layers, you can tell this is the culture, the worldview, the religion that they've been brought up in. And so we may come at it from an idea where, hey, we all believe that there's there's one supreme being or creator, but they don't, that's not what they've been taught their whole life. And so that starts to factor into the conversation. Shame is another one that factors into the conversation as everything is really kind of based upon pleasing their family and winning the approval of others and not bringing shame upon their family. Whereas I'm not sure that factors as much in to our American context where we're big on individuality. um, They're big on making their family name great. And so that, Mm -hmm. that factors in when you're talking with the college students. But like I said, those initial conversations that you're having look pretty similar. And that's another reason why I think our students coming out and serving with us find it easy, an easy place to come serve because it doesn't look much different than ministry does for them on their own college campus.
0: Mm -hmm. You just need to be aware of some of the undercurrents or worldview that's coming at them. Do you find, and this is both in your context and and across the region that you work in, do you find that college age students are becoming less religious? Are they becoming more secular? Kind of like it seems to be going in the states, or is that a states phenomenon?
2: I think that they try they're they're influenced by social media and just media in general, right? And so on the outside, they would want you to they would they would want it to appear like. They're totally coming from a secular context. In fact, um, it's not uncommon for us to be sharing with a Hindu these days, but them to actually say, hey, I'm I'm an atheist or I'm agnostic. And then you get into the conversation. You're like, wait, that I don't think you know what those <laughs> words actually mean. Um, but they want to appear more like their, their Western peers because of what they're seeing from the media. And so that's definitely a veneer that's there. And then you start getting into it and they're still they're wanting to appease their Hindu idols to make sure they get the good grades on the exam, or when it comes down time for, you know, their families ready for them to get married. They want to make sure that they're doing all the, the specific rituals and things that they would need to do so that they can get the blessings uh, that their Hindu families would be looking for. So all those superstitions in a sense are still there,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: but they very much are trying to come off like from the outside, like the West and their peers mm-hmm. who are in the West.
0: Mm-hmm. What are some of their common fears you mentioned earlier? Like what are, what are fears that a South Asian college student has that might be different? For
2: sure. Um, I don't know how different they would be, but definitely fear of fear of failure. Uh, So you'll find uh, a ton of college students who they're stressed out to the max. I mean, wrestling with anxiety and it's all down to, Hey, I got to pass this exam that's coming up. And if I don't, it's not just failure for me but it means I might not graduate. I might not get that job and my family will never break this cycle that they're in. And so there's just a ton of pressure on them and they carry, I think the anxiety and the fear from the pressure for their studies on that. And so that's seen in a wide variety of things for South Asians, whether it be getting the grades to get the job and, you know, to get married, to have a family, there's a lot of different factors. They're just they're, but they're carrying the pressure of their entire family Mm -hmm. On their backs as they face that, not just the wants or the desires that they have. In fact, most South Asians don't really know what the wants and desires that they as individuals have. You'll find a lot of students, uh, specifically guys who are studying engineering, and you ask them, hey, are you you really interested in this? And they're like, no, I hate engineering, but like, this is what my family said that I had to do because this is a good job. And you start asking, well, what are you interested in? What do you like? And no one's ever asked them that question. They've mm-hmm. they've never had the opportunity really to think for themselves of, hey, I'm really into art. That would have been like stopped because this isn't going to lead to a good job, a good pay
1: mm-hmm.
2: and an opportunity to support your family down the road.
0: How much does that affect the context I came out of? It was a lot of single, single child families. How big are the families there? Is that pressure on all this, the kids equally? Or is there a lot of pressure on the first oldest son? Like, What does that look like?
2: Let's well, say the bulk of it is on the oldest son. However, there is still some pressure. What I find fascinating is there's even pressure on the girls to do that. However, the girls are going to be usually an arranged marriage and married off and then expected that whatever they studied to not do that anymore because now their number one job is to raise the family and take care of the house. But to be that presentable option for marriage, then they're going to want that degree or that background to go on their their bio, you know, as they're kind of being presented for the arranged marriages. So it's just a fascinating dynamic that we don't really see at play here in the U.S. I mean, you can still in South Asia, go to the open up the newspaper, classified ads and see this resume, so to speak, for the arranged marriages that they're trying to do. And so there's even pressure in that for the women to or the girls to be able to get married. They're mm-hmm. working towards some of those same goals. But in terms of actually caring for the family, it usually is falling to the sons.
1: Okay.
0: On those classifieds, because, oh, go ahead, Zach.
1: I was just going to ask her to follow up. When we talk about arranged marriages here in the West, I mean, the students and people we talked to are like, ah, that, that, what, what does that kind of typically look like for ladies, particularly, but also men in that Hindu context? Because it's not only Hindu context, but in the South Asian context. Give us a real practical example so that we're understanding it very clearly and not you know, prejudging it or being prejudicial.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think that's great. I take for granted after being there for 10 years that this is normal. And it's really to us from from American mindset isn't. I mean, it's, it is a very common question for me to meet someone my age who's married and just say, hey, was your marriage a love marriage or an arranged marriage? That's a super common question for me to ask in the first meeting. Not something I would ask my American friends, right, or someone that I meet here in the States. And it can vary depending on a rural to an urban context, how educated and affluent the family is. But I have some friends of mine who their siblings arranged marriage. They met them twice. They met them once to decide, hey, and the families met to decide, is this going to be a good match? They met one more time just to get to know each other a little bit better, and the third time they saw each other in person was the wedding. That's not always the case. There are other times where they arrange the marriage, and then it's kind of like we would in, we would say in the states, like dating with intentionality towards marriage. But perhaps that commitment's a little bit more solidified on the front end. And that, I I think, from a Western mindset can seem a little bit just kind of a a foreign concept or idea. I will say this, though, there seem to be far less divorces in South Asia because they didn't necessarily choose the one they were with initially. And so they're choosing to stay with them um, because this was kind of the way that it was expected. But love marriage is becoming more and more of a thing where they're, you know, Dating in a more similar context to what we would see see in the West, in the urban centers, in the rural areas, that's still not happening at all across South Asia. It's very much an arranged marriage where even a dowry is still being paid for the bride or depending on which, which uh, culture they're coming from, specific state, that's going to vary a lot in the rural areas mm-hmm. for
0: sure. What's a typical dowry look like?
2: Yeah, you know, that's going to vary so much that I would be hesitant to even put a typical, but I mean, there's some kind of payment or gift, which in a rural area just could be farm animals up to even money being given to like a super nice sari being given to wear at the wedding. And so that's going to vary from context to context. And there are some cultures that the dowry goes the other way. Mm. It's not given for the bride, it's given for the groom. And so like like I said, I hate to put just one broad <laughs> stroke on it. That's one unique thing about South Asia that I think is just how diverse it is in general from country to country. But then even within all of our countries, state to state, even Mm -hmm. a lot of diversity, because before, you know, each one of those countries were individual countries. They were all many kingdoms within kingdoms. And so you've got just a ton of different culture and a variety of languages Mm -hmm. that are represented across. And all that plays into everything in life, including how marriage is done. Mm -hmm.
0: And how like going back to these classifieds, I would have assumed that it would be more like through relationships or something, you know, like I have a daughter, I know these other guys with a son, I go to them, we make a deal. But it sounds like it's like it sounds like it's just kinda is it just kinda like, here's what I've got, who who can give me the best offer for it, or
2: in a lot of cases, and especially like the older their kids are getting, you know, and they want they want to make sure that this is happening sooner for their family. Now, in a lot of Christian communities, so less than 2% of the population are Christian, but 1.8 billion, even 2% is a decent number we're talking about. So there is a Christian community in South Asia. And so they will network, I feel like, a little bit more or differently than maybe the Hindu or the Muslim context in South Asia will to find a good fit, so to speak, but that in a lot of ways, isn't necessarily, Hey, that we get along and have great chemistry, but they're looking more. So are we from similar family backgrounds, similar economic status, similar educational background? They're looking for those things to check out on paper and Mm -hmm. less about, Hey, we went out to dinner and had a great time and enjoyed each other's company.
0: Mm -hmm. For a Christian, let's say they're the first Christian in their family how I'm sure you have to navigate that with friends, pressure to get married, wanting to marry a Christian. How do you advise them or what does that look like?
2: Yeah, it's so complicated. You know, you think you have all the answers when you're working here in the U.S. and then you find yourself in another context and you're like, I thought that I knew the right answer. And you're scouring the scriptures trying to see, like, does the Bible talk about this? And even thinking about, you know, some of of my friends, they are first generation believers. So their parents are still Hindu. They're at the age ready to get married. If their parents arrange the marriage, they're going to arrange the marriage with a a Hindu. And we, we don't want that if we can, you know, that's that's not the goal for us. And so in a lot of ways, it becomes the responsibility of the pastors and the local elders and the Christian community, not really a responsibility that our church planters here in the U.S. are thinking about as they're planting churches, but, but our church planters in South Asia are thinking through. And so it really does, church becomes family and community. And so as we're seeing people come to faith and we're praying and believing God's going to do that. We need to be ready that there's a lot of different responsibilities that the church is going to have to take on in terms of being genuine community. And this is one of those conversations. Um, Now, I have had uh, an example of a college student coming to faith. Their family was not happy about it. They were actually from a Muslim background. And we talked through all of the sacrifices that were going to have to be made if she was to be baptized. And she said, I know this obedience. I'm going to do this. And I even tried to talk her out of it. You know, like, are you sure that you understand what you're doing? Yeah, I get it. You, We read the scripture. There's no way I can not do this. This is obedience to Jesus. So she did it. Um, and her family's response was to marry her off to a Muslim man. Didn't give her any choice in that. And so that's one of the challenges that we face with college students in general is they can make this decision, you know, at, at 20, but at 22, 23, when their family's ready to marry them off, that's kind of how they they'll come at that. And in her case, you know, she's still trying to stand strong and and follow the Lord, but it's a very different context in the sense that she really couldn't stand up and mm-hmm. say no in that context. And again, I, I hate to, to paint like a broad stroke for all of South Asia, because that really does vary in a lot of ways on the education and uh, economic status of a lot of the families and individuals and kind of how they go about that. So Mm, if someone else is listening to this and they're like, that's not been my experience in South Asia, (laughs) I I get it that it's not like that everywhere.
0: There's a saying I heard once that said uh, anything you've heard about this country is true somewhere. That's right. That's good. (laughs) Somewhere else it's not. For people on socioeconomic status, do you see God moving more among different, more, more so among a different socioeconomic statuses? What does that look like?
2: Yeah, honestly, we do. So the team that um that's focused, well, the team in my city, it's kind of divided up into a, a few different sub-segments. One of those, like I mentioned, is the team I work on that's college students and young professionals. But another one of those teams is really focused on the slum communities in the city that I live in. So almost 60% of the city is in slums, which would be that low economic status they're seeing God do incredible things and and it's really, really cool and exciting. And I think honestly, a lot of it is, is similar to what we see here in the West. When people have education and they have money and they have good health, they don't think they need God for anything. And so similarly in South Asia, when you've got an educated, affluent South Asian, you can ask them, Hey, can I pray for you about something? And their answer is no, I'm good. Thanks. But you ask, you know, one of these families that's in a rural area or living in the slum, someone's sick, hey, can I pray for you about something? They've got a real physical need, which leads then as we pray for that and even are able at times to meet those physical needs, it leads to opportunities to be able to communicate. Hey, we also got a spiritual need here. Can we share? And so it, people just seem to be more open and receptive to the fact that they might need something from the, the lower economic status than those who physically have everything that they need.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Here, I'm going completely off anything we prepared you for. So, Uh so you're, you're part of the team that's working in the slums. What do they do so that they're not just coming in as like these really wealthy Americans, uh, comparatively wealthy, what are they doing to make sure they're not getting uh, what's called rice Christians, you know, are people that realize it's profitable to be a Christian. I, you know, get all these things. How do they deal with all those dynamics?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think one thing is to, well, two thoughts that come to mind. There's a lot of different ways to go about that, but two specific that come to mind. One is not being too quick to throw money at a problem. Um, Sometimes, Money is the answer and they need food in their bellies, you know, and it might be like, let's get something to eat as we talk about this, but to be quick to not as the American give money directly to this, but how can we bless the local churches here Mm. and let them go about meeting physical needs that maybe are happening. And along that same lines are, I don't always have to be the one that's in the slum sharing. Um, It might actually be more beneficial for me to sit down with a national sister Train her, encourage her, and put this one particular slum on her radar, mm-hmm. and send her out into that area. Um, she's going to go and blend in in a way that I, my, my white skin might actually mess things up. As a foreigner, as an American, it could actually mess things up. And so, for her to to be able to go in, and so we focus a lot in South Asia on our, our vision is local ownership with a core missionary task. So how do we train up local brothers and sisters to go out and to be able to do that? Not that it fully removes what you just talked about, because that can even happen with our Indian uh, South Asian brothers and sisters. But how do we how do we train up locals to be able to go out and do that helps tremendously?
0: That's really interesting. What about jumping back into college students and thinking about our students? that are going to go over this coming summer. How do they deal with issues of caste, issues of socioeconomic difference? I'm assuming most people that they're they're interacting with are going to be like either middle uh, wealthy or they're middle class climbing. You know, they've made it to college. Is that a fair assumption?
2: A lot of times. There may be a few teams that they're engaging with in South Asia that the teams are actually reaching more lower, but they're working probably with a translator that's going to find themselves more in that middle class And so I would say this if you spend your entire time trying to figure out the caste system of South Asia, you'll just go crazy trying to figure it out. I've been there for 10 years and there's still so much about it that I just don't understand. But I think what you can take away is just understanding that they have been brought up to see, in some cases, there's no way I can work myself out of what I've been born into. And so it's in a sense, Hopelessness. It's locked them into whatever they've been born into and what they know. And so just recognizing that those things are at play, but not assuming that you'll figure it all out in a summer or a semester or even 10 years that you're living there. We'll, we will always, as Americans, be the outsiders. And so, and I say this about just Hinduism in general if we assume that we know what every Hindu thinks, mm-hmm we're going to miss miss the boat. So in the same way, when you're on your campus sharing the gospel, you're going to ask questions to find out who someone is, what matters to them, what values do they have, what hurts, what struggles do they have? Asking similar questions to your Hindu friends in South Asia, because it's hard for us to just assume, hey, they're from this caste, so they must be this way, or they're a Hindu, they must believe this. I had a friend describe trying to teach on Hinduism is like nailing jello to the wall. It's impossible. We can't do it. I mean, I could spend this whole whole time talking about it and probably it would, you know, cover like 1% of the population and what they believe because it is so diverse. And so just talking to people, taking the time to get to know them, taking time to ask questions, I think is super helpful.
0: Yeah. It's really like the question is the key to the is the key that will unlock whatever path to present the gospel in a way that they can understand and grasp.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of that bridge, that connection point for them to be able to launch into fruitful spiritual conversations. You know, you can get into kind of a theological ping pong match where you're going back and forth on like, hey, I believe this. And then they go, well, that reminds me of this, this God that we worship in Hinduism. And it's like this. And then you find yourself just going back and forth, back and forth, not actually getting anywhere. Mm -hmm. but getting to those deeper questions, you know, like, what do you love to do? What are you passionate about? Do you believe that we have purpose in life? Is there something going on that's difficult this week in the life of your family and using those, not, not that those um, apologetics aren't helpful and there's a time and a place for those, but really digging into the relationship. And that's one of the beautiful things about South Asian culture is it doesn't take long to, to -hmm. get deep into that relationship. And, and now we're friends for life because we've had that, you know, initial conversation. And yeah, just, just trying to dig in there, get to know what's going on in their heart and in their mind. And where does the gospel intersect with that? I personally, a lot, of, I'm sure a lot of people listening have used three circles as a way to be able to share the gospel. I know that's kind of a common tool in the States now. It works in South Asia as well, especially with college students. And It doesn't take long to look around and see brokenness in the world that they live in, right? Poverty is everywhere. Trafficking is everywhere. Broken families, broken relationships. They didn't make that grade that they wanted on that exam. There's a wide variety of things. So I like to start with, okay, here's the brokenness we're seeing in our world. Did you know that wasn't God's original design and creation? And then moving right into that three circles presentation of the gospel, but it takes listening to people and asking questions and finding out where they are and what's going on in the life of their family.
1: What Julie might, as you kind of already started on this path, uh, what are some other common faux pas that students, uh, especially new folks coming to work, especially with those college students, those middle, maybe upper class folks, what are some common faux pas that they might commit in trying to share with them?
2: Trying to do it so different, It's like you think because you're in this new context, this new place, it has to be this whole new different thing. And they're just college students, too, you know. And so, again, going back to the questions and kind of finding that intersect, but don't overthink it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say in that. Like, just because you've flown 8000 miles and now you're, you know, in a different time zone and probably jet lagging for the first few days that you're there, it's really not that different And so don't overthink it um, or make it that challenging. Just get out and start having those conversations. And you'll honestly find, I think, it's easier even to get into spiritual conversations in South Asia um, because everyone's spiritual of some kind. So I think that's one is that they overthink it. I think, two, being so stressed that you're going to make a mistake culturally um so you come out we're gonna train you if you're coming to work with one of our teams in south asia we're gonna do what we can to to help you not make those cultural mistakes like eating with your left hand or wearing your shoes inside someone's house some of those big things that we would say in south asia hey don't do that we're gonna talk to you about all that but at the end of the day your south asian friends are going to be very gracious And so I think some people come and they're so like worried about hitting all of those things that we talk about in terms of learning culture, or maybe it's learning, you know, if if you're here for two years, you're trying to learn all the language and not make any major mistakes. The reality is you're all going to make, we're all going to make mistakes, uh, but not being so afraid of making mistakes that we won't take the risk of sharing the gospel. And along that same line too, just one more thought I'd add is let the gospel be the filter. I think we can be really quick to start a conversation with someone and be like, oh, they're they're not interested in what I have to say, or this person would never believe. But often it takes us actually getting to sharing the gospel to see if, hey, maybe they are actually interested in hearing more. And so our team talks a lot about that, of actually getting to the point where we've shared as much of the gospel as we can in that initial conversation And let that be the filter if we're going to follow up. Not necessarily, hey, do you guys want to hang out with us again because we had a good time, but hey, we just shared the story about Jesus. Would you be interested in reading the Bible together or hearing more stories or meeting and discussing this more and letting that be the filter for that instead of just deciding initially like, okay, I'm a couple minutes into this. They're probably not interested and moving on to the next conversation.
1: Okay. And can I uh, ask a follow-up, what are some common responses that they might get uh, when they approach it in that way or when they start some of these conversations?
2: Yeah, that's so good. Um, I mean, you do get the, we kind of think of it in terms of red light, yellow light, green light. Honestly, that's how we talk about it a lot. You do get those red lights where you share and you ask someone, hey, are you interested? And they are like, absolutely not.
0: Do you just bluntly ask them afterwards? Hey, are you interested?
2: Yeah, a lot of times I'll ask him just have you ever heard that story before? Have you ever, or have you ever heard about Jesus before? A lot of people in a South Asian context in our cities may have some context, but what that context is, is, is they've seen pictures of Jesus on the cross at the Catholic Church, or they've gone to a convent school. Very rarely do I share that story, share the gospel message in South Asia and someone's heard the full thing before very rarely does that happen and even in our rural context people have no context for it at all they're like no we have no idea who jesus is and so again that's that's going to vary but they'll either give us that kind of hard we're not interested it's often not like you know they're they're very harsh about it it's just like thanks but no thanks There are other times where I can tell people are willing to meet again, but it's really they're more interested in the fact that I'm an American and less about they really just liked what we just talked about. And I might try it one more visit to see how that goes. But I think just recognizing that as an American coming over, that that could be a factor involved in why they want to meet again. But then we get to what we call yellow light. So sometimes I ask them, what do you think about that? Would you like to hear more? Would you like to know what it's like to follow Jesus? And they're like, absolutely, tell me more about that. And so we would come back and share what we call stories of hope. But it's essentially you can pull any any story from the Gospels and just, just share with them. It doesn't have to be, you know, a super formal Bible study, although it could be. It could be just meet again over coffee and come prepared with one or two stories because they have no box to put Jesus in. They have no worldview. The gods that they know and that they worship are not anything like the Jesus that we follow. And so giving them an idea of who Jesus is, what his character is like, the fact that he loves them and is pursuing a relationship. These follow up stories of hope that I mentioned would be what we would do in that case. And then there are times, you know, where you share and someone's right then they're like, hey, I what you just shared I'm ready to believe that I'm ready to follow. And in that case, again, where we want to get them into a follow up relationship, where we're moving on into discipleship things and talking through. Um, And so I think the key for me is that was a long way to to say this. The key is if I ask someone if they're interested in hearing more about Jesus and they say, yes, I'm going to clear my schedule to go meet with them again Uh, and we're going to get into God's word because I believe that it's the spirit and God's word that changes the life of a Hindu and transforms them, not anything that I have to say. And so, yeah, we're going to, we're going to go and and do those follow-up visits and get them into the scriptures so that the spirit and the word can transform their heart, Mm -hmm. which is something that I can't do.
0: Yeah. Can I ask a question on that? It sounds to me like you get to the gospel on the first conversation with most people is that true
2: it is you'll find religion is so important in south asia Mm -hmm. i mean i kind of think we should do this in the states too But that's maybe (laughs) another podcast for another day bring it in south asia it's so it's so much a part of who they are that if i wait till the third or the fourth or the fifth coffee or chai that we've had together they're not going to think it's very important to me Mm -hmm. I know often by the way they're dressed and maybe even some of the vocabulary that they're using, what religion is their background. Mm -hmm. And so I want to be quick to share this because I want them to see, hey, this is something that's really, really important to me instead of introducing it, Mm -hmm. you know, three or four times later. Now, it might be that I can't get to the full gospel in that initial conversation with my neighbor. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't always happen quite as planned, but that's the goal. Mm
0: Yeah. I think for our students coming from the States and even working with international students here in the States, I feel like we're so into this mode now of like, we need to be relational. We need to, we don't want people just knocking on our door, you know, that we think relational, relational, and we don't realize it in a lot of contexts there's no reason to wait. And especially if you're going to be there for a summer, I mean, based on what you're telling me, I say, get in there, get the gospel in the conversation and see if they're interested. And if not, and you can still pray for him, you still love them, but go look for another one and and keep you should get like tons of shares in, you know, and and let God show you some of the amazing work he's doing.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I mean, I one of the things that we believe as a team and our all of our teams that are serving in South Asia is right now as we're on this this podcast recording this, God's preparing the hearts of people to receive the good mm-hmm. news of the gospel. And our job is simply to be obedient and to go share. And we never know when the next person that we share with is going to be the one that God has been drawing and just preparing mm-hmm. their heart for that moment.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah. So, I mean, and, and I would say this too, to any students who I, I'm a super shy. Uh, I was like growing up was like super, super shy. I didn't want to start a conversation with strangers. And now that's like my job is to start conversations with strangers, which is kind of funny to think about it, but anyone who's coming out and that's maybe a fear of theirs to just say, it really is easy to get into conversations about spiritual things in South Asia. The hard part you're going to get to is when you start talking with a Hindu about Jesus being the only way, but that's going to come a little bit later in the conversation, that initial conversation of getting to spiritual things. It really is pretty, pretty easy to get to that point, Nine times out of 10 in South Asia.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, just in terms of college students, college age work, what would you want our students to be doing to prepare or what would you want them to be praying right now um, before they go?
2: Yeah, I would say in terms of preparing um, I like to tell, tell people that there's nothing magic about the seatbelts on the plane coming over here, right? There's nothing that's going to transform your life when you sit down on that plane to fly. And so building healthy habits and personal evangelism in your own personal time with the Lord Man, get on your your campus or out in your community and share the gospel every chance that you get, so that that is the most natural thing that comes out of your mouth, um, because you're 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 speaking about Jesus that often. Uh, be that guy, be that girl that you maybe you're like, I don't know if I want to be that. No, go ahead and get those reps in now. One because you care about your campus. But two, if you're doing that in the States, it's going to be that much easier when you get to the another context where you are having to learn a few cultural things and pick up things here. But but you're not also having to learn to share the gospel because you've already learned how to do that in the States and then spending time with the Lord. Spiritual warfare, I think, on the field when you're serving overseas is a real thing. It's, it can be lonely. It can be difficult. There's a lot of different things that factor in, whether it's a summer or semester or longer that you're serving. And the things that will keep you through that summer that you're serving with us or through that semester, it's going to be that personal relationship and dependence that you have on the Lord. And so developing healthy habits and prayer and time in the word and memorizing scripture and those things I think are key. And then, like you you mentioned prayer too, I would just say praying specifically for the city and the team where you'll be serving. Pray for unity on the team that you'll be serving with. the enemy loves to attack us in terms of teaming relationships, whether you've been on the field for ten years or ten days. teaming unity is a big one. And so praying now for the team that you'll be serving with, praying for the people that are going to come in your path. I mean, you've come to a place like my city, twenty two million people, And yet God's got divine appointments for you all summer long. So praying specifically for that person you're going to meet on the Metro or in an Uber or at the McDonald's, wherever it may be, and asking that God would lead you specifically to those places.
0: Wow, that is so great and so true. I really appreciate you. Listen, listeners, that's it for today. But we will be back next week with Julie as we talk with her some more. Tune in. And if you're not sure what the three-circle sharing that she referenced in this episode, we put a link down to a YouTube video in the show notes. See you soon.